Good morning and welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. Today, I want to talk to you about the success of the cross. How successful was the cross of Jesus Christ? What did he finish? What's left unfinished? What do you and I have to do? Today, we're going to cover all of that and so much more. And perhaps one of the most important broadcasts I may ever preach. Let's pray to begin this study today. Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make this word come alive to us and make it real to us. Lord Jesus, let your spirit rest upon every word that is spoken. I want you to be seen clearly in everything that I speak and everything that I say. May all lies be torn down and truth be revealed. And Father, may everything that you have for us that causes us to experience the abundance of life that you died to give us. Lord, may that become a reality for every listener of this podcast today. In Jesus' name, amen. What exactly is the gospel? Do you understand that Jesus Christ saves you single-handedly? That according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. We have to go all the way back to the very beginning to learn a little bit about the story of, of why or how we're even here. And when we go back to the beginning, the beginning of the story in Genesis tells us that humanity began in the mind of God. And even though man and God had a beautiful relationship to start with, man, by an act of his own will, chose to turn his back on God in what is known as the fall. And man essentially said to God, I want my way and not yours. I want to be the master of my own life and I don't want to follow your voice or direction anymore. But the fall was not the last word on mankind. See, because Jesus came. And Jesus is the place where God and man meet. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, stepping into our story. Jesus makes himself the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. God sacrifices himself for his own creation. I'm telling you, he's just that good. For it is the the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that saved and reconciled you back to God once and for all. The Bible says he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, in Galatians chapter 4 and 5, Paul gives this conclusion. And he says, if you guys mix any of the old covenant religious law, that old system in with following Jesus, then Jesus is of no benefit to you. Listen, this is the message that got the disciples and the apostles killed. The message that Jesus Christ alone was all you and I needed for salvation. He was sufficient 100%. And that there was no need for any more of those old religious sacrifices at all. But simply for you and I to trust, to lean on, to surrender completely our lives to Jesus Christ. 
The gospel, according to Jesus, was a threat to the religious system then. 2,000 years later, it still is today. So what keeps the spirit of religion going today? Well, the ego of man is strong. And it didn't take very long for distortions to start working their way into the message of the grace of the resurrection and the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, just as the law started back in Exodus 19, with just 10 commandments in Exodus 19 and 20, by the time Jesus showed up, there were 613. Where do we get the rest of those? Well, for some reason, we always want to add to the word of the Lord with our own efforts. You know, the first generation of apostles were amazing. The Bible says they turned the world upside down. But the next generation after those original 12, they started being confronted with this message, what do I do? Remember like the Philippian jailer said to the apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul's response, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your entire household. And yet later on in next generations, when people ask the question that they always ask when they hear the gospel, what do I do? Well, the person who's answering that question, you feel some power. Now you have a chance to say something that might control somebody else's behavior. And so, instead of simply just saying that sin was dealt with once and for all in the sacrifice of Christ, now there was a growing emphasis that was placed on something people had to do. We created qualifications. Let's just jump forward to the year 1517, the Reformation. Prior to that, the church came up with an interesting theology, and it was this. Only sins before baptism were actually forgiven. Now, this put the emphasis of salvation on that moment where you got dunked in water. So, your sins before baptism are forgiven, but new sins, not so much. The new sins, you had to work to get forgiven. So, if that's the case, and you want people to stop sinning, you have to make the consequences as dire as possible. Now, the problem with this, though, is that people started putting off baptism for as long as possible, ensuring that somehow more sin would be forgiven. So now the early church leaders have to come up with new concepts. And one of the concepts that they came up with was a repetition or a return to penance. We call it repentance. It's a beautiful thing, but it must be correctly understood and defined. Repentance or the repeating, the repetition of penance would be the way that we would solve the problem of sin after salvation. It was meant somehow to make forgiveness attainable, but not so easy that people would take advantage of it. So now we created a system that got really complicated. It's not a system that Jesus ever detailed out for us, but it's a system the church somehow decided to make extremely difficult to understand. For example, how many times can you be forgiven? And what sins qualified to be forgiven by what kind of repentance? 
There were some leaders back in the day that suggested that maybe there's only one opportunity to repent that a person should have, like one strike and you're out. If the majority of people felt like this was a bad idea, or most people would just never have a chance. So repeated penance became the norm for the church all the way up until the Reformation. And from this, we developed a really complicated system of categorizing sin. And with those categories came an equally complicated process of repeating this penance that involved the depth of sincerity of a person's sorrow or regret. And you combine that sincerity with certain things that you were given to do, various practices of penance as commanded by the priest. You did what they told you, and they would pronounce you forgiven. Isn't it interesting that in the fall of man, we essentially looked at a good and loving father and said, we don't want to obey your voice anymore. And what we found ourselves in was a system of religion where we look at a person who's making up rules, telling us what we have to do to be right with God, because we don't believe the cross actually worked or that God actually wants us to be reconciled to him. No, instead, we go to another man, one person just going to another person called a priest and saying, hey, hey, tell me what to do to be right with God. You do what they tell you to do, they pronounce you forgiven, and you would receive atonement for your sins, as if the cross did nothing at all. Now, the term repentance in our English translations comes from a Greek word. It's the Greek word metanoia. And metanoia simply means change your mind. Yet, inspired by years of repeated penance, metanoia, when the Bible was finally translated into English, became translated as repentance. Now, penance, think about that word penance, it implies payment a transaction. You pay and you get something back, giving penance. And it's those transactions in money that funded the building of many cathedrals across Europe and in other parts of the world. Part of receiving absolution or forgiveness was actually paying money for your sins, as if the church invented the swear jar for life. From this idea of paying for your sins came the doctrine of indulgences, where you actually bought forgiveness. You might notice we don't do indulgences really anymore, but the mindset has been retained even in our Protestant theology. We don't pay money to be forgiven anymore, but there's something ingrained within our psyche. The idea of repentance must contain something you do and some sort of payment. So instead of money, we typically, especially in the evangelical world, we measure repentance in the depth of sorrow that a person feels, in the sincerity of their confession. And in many people's mind, it's this action that actually pays for your forgiveness. It continues in our culture today. Much of our preaching actually promotes this. What you hear, it often is meant to stir up within you a sorrow or evoking some regret by making you conscious of your sinful condition and making sure that you realize you don't deserve anything good from God. But the reality is this isn't the gospel. True metanoia 
definitely includes acknowledging regret and feelings of sorrow, but that's not how you repent. Metanoia literally means to come to your senses or to your right mind. And listen, having grown up in church, I know there's a lot of people that in the moment and under manipulation can feel intense sorrow and regret, but it doesn't change their heart. Why? Because all they're looking for is to get right with God, not have a relationship with God. You know, Tertullian in 198 AD said this, Metanoia is not a confession of sins, but a change of mind. When we change our mind, certainly our behavior and lifestyle will change. In Hebrews chapter 12, you read the story of Jacob and Esau, and it says afterward, when Esau wanted to inherit a blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, it says, or metanoia is the word, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now, if you've ever heard this preached, you might have heard it preached that Esau really badly wanted to repent, but he couldn't find a way of doing it. But think about this. What couldn't Esau find? What he couldn't find was a way of changing his father's mind. See, Isaac had blessed Jacob instead of Esau, and there was no way of taking that blessing back or changing his mind, no matter how much Esau cried and begged and pleaded. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ is not Isaac, and God is not Abraham. The ultimate truth about God and man is revealed in Jesus Christ, that while you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before we ever even got around to trying to think about what to say in our repentance speech, he died for us for us. See, the gospel gives man a whole new way of understanding and relating to God through the new covenant. The new covenant brings us to metanoia, repentance, which is simply to come to our senses or to change our thinking in accordance with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, God isn't revealed in isolation from us. He doesn't reveal himself apart from us, but united with us. And it's in him that you and I find our authentic identity. But if we don't think we're worthy to be even united or close to a holy God, my goodness, we'll never truly know who we really are. When Jesus talked about repentance, he did so from Luke chapter 15. The story of the good father, we know it as the story of the prodigal son. And the moment where the son came to himself or his senses is described in those words exactly, he came to himself. It was his memory of his father, the memory of his origin, where he began, that provided reference and the basis on which he could come to himself and go home. Think about that term. If the hog pen was the place where the prodigal son began, that would have been his home. And he would have had no reference to anything better. But what he did is he remembered his home. He remembered where he truly began and who he truly was, which was not ever meant to be the person in the hog pen. 
Now, that sudden realization of home launched him out of that hog pen home to the heart of the Father. James chapter 1, verse 23 says that whenever a man hears this word, he's like a man that sees the face of his birth as in a mirror. The word used here, the word tears, is the word genesis, or the beginning, or the origin of where we even started. We're in the hog pen of our sin, the hog pen of life, and we suddenly come to a realization and we hear the gospel. We don't have to be here. What's the answer? What must I do to get out of the hog pen? Go home. Go home. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Simple as that. Turn your attention, your affection towards God, and home isn't far away. He's as close to you as your next breath. You look around you right now, though, and humanity might not look like it's currently experiencing union with God, but the reality is our genesis, our origin is in him. So the question here is, do we embrace God's truth about who we are, or do we continue to live in the hog pen of our own illusions, even our religious ones? Now, I'd like to suggest to you today that faith and repentance, faith and metanoia actually work together. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to metanoia, that everyone should remember where they come from and go home. Face the Father. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, we read that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Metanoia is simply that. It's coming to the knowledge of the truth. And what is the truth? You begin in God. Face to face is where you were born with him. Face to face with him is where you belong. A relationship with God is where we find our authentic identity. Coming home doesn't just mean you have an initial awakening and then you go back to your old life. No, it's this unfolding revelation as the truth continues to unveil the authenticity of Christ in us, the hope of glory. So let's understand this together. When we repent, we're not creating a moment or an event where you twist God's arm to suddenly forgive you. He forgave you at the cross. The new covenant changed everything. The torn veil was the removal of the barrier between God and man. And now when we understand that goodness, it's that goodness that persuades us to change our mind, both about God and about us. One of the major things that changes is our perspective of our either distance or separation from God or our union with God. Now, before, you might not have thought that you're qualified to be united with a holy God, but in Christ, you realize, I am qualified, and there is no distance or separation between us and God because of Jesus Christ. Now, if a holy God has come to live inside of an unholy you, who wins? Is it his holiness or your unholiness that wins? Does his light get dimmed by your darkness? Or does the holiness of his light and his grace completely cover all of your darkness, changing you and saving you single-handedly? I believe so. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, The goodness of God leads us to change our mind or leads us to repentance. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he died for us. And he didn't die just for a few. 
2 Corinthians 5 says, one died for all, then all died. He is the last Adam, or the final word on the race of humanity that stands guilty and condemned before God. In the death of Christ, sin, guilt, shame, and judgment met their final end. His resurrection is the invitation and birthing of a whole new world of communion with God, a whole new creation that stands blameless and innocent before God, reconciled, at rest. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So the gospel doesn't proclaim the possibility that you can be righteous. It reveals and unveils the reality that you are righteous because of Jesus Christ. And that's good news. It's a declaration of faith, the faith of God, actually, that awakens faith in us. So repentance is not how you get saved or even making your own salvation real. I'd say you could be sorry over sin, weep and cry, and still never have a revelation of salvation or grace or forgiveness. Those revelations, they might be momentary, even fleeting, until you mess up again. And see, the problem is in the mindset that it's all about you. But the moment you see, the moment you agree with Jesus Christ, the moment you agree with what he says about God, finally admitting that the cross is a success, that the Father himself loves you, that is the moment of faith in which you yield yourself to the good news of the gospel. So the question you might be asking is, how in the world do we deal with sin without something that I do? The major issue that God seemed to have with the Old Covenant was it was a continual reminder of sin, which meant people never really enjoyed a relationship with God from a place of a pure conscience. They might have just bought a sacrifice a minute ago to take away the sin, but they'd still be conscious of the fact that it wouldn't be long before you got to buy another one. Modern doctrines simply replaced animal sacrifices with other activities. Now you think of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No sacrifice did that. Stop and think about this. There's no criminal justice system on earth that will let you off the hook just because you confess your crime. Just because you own up to it, that's it? You get to go free? Well, according to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, we confess our sins. What happens? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What happens when you confess your sins? You're reminded of the cross. You realize it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And when was that blood shed? It was shed at the cross. It's not a license to sin in the future because you think you're going to be forgiven from everything that you're about to go and do. No, listen, it's a realization that he loves us so much, he created the solution before you and I ever created the problem. And it's meant to draw us into that place where we live from that place of love and favor and acceptance, knowing that we're already forgiven. That's what provokes a life of righteousness and holy living, not a fear of punishment. Listen, if you think you need a fear of punishment in order to live right, Listen, that might control your behavior, but don't think for a minute that you're whole or that you're even free. You haven't yet experienced the grace and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's still all about you. But salvation, authentic salvation, is about what Jesus Christ did. We come to this awareness that we've missed the mark and we've sinned. 
What do we do? We allow the Holy Spirit to direct our lives back to fixing our eyes on Jesus. We don't run from him. We run to him, straight into his embrace. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, verse 12 and 14 detail this very beautifully. It says this, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not just the image of the things, can't ever, with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they have not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every single year. For it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It goes on to say, by the will of Christ, by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And verse 14 says, by one offering, he perfected forever those who are being sanctified. John 17 says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they may be sanctified. Your salvation, your sanctification, your atonement, your reconciliation were all the work of Christ. So instead of a bunch of sacrifices and things we do, we just simply turn our affection and attention back to Jesus. And the man of Jesus and the event of the cross and the power of the resurrection all sin of all men for all time is dealt with with so much finality that God would never think of it again. You might, but he doesn't. And when you understand the success of the cross and receive by grace through faith, your invitation to participate in that achievement simply by believing in what Jesus did, I believe you can discover a clean break from the bondage of sin and live with the joy of a clear conscience before God. Romans 6 verses 10 and 11 says, by death he died to sin once for all. That means he ended the relationship with sin. And now the life that he lives, the Bible says he lives to God in unbroken communion and fellowship with him. This is the new covenant. So even so, it says, reckon or consider yourselves dead to sin. You and sin have broken up. Don't get back together again. You're dead to sin and alive to God because of Jesus Christ. The Christian life's not a constant attempt to die to sin. Christ died once for all. The Christian life is a surrender to the abundant life of Christ. You can't die to sin through any effort or discipline on your own. Monks have tried for years. It's not your regret. It's not the sincerity of your confession that will separate you from sin. It's not even the depth of your sorrow, and it's not the clarity of your insight and revelation that will set you free from a destructive habit and thought and lifestyle. Regret won't change your mind, and it won't change your heart. Listen, the story of the prodigal son reveals the answer. He had to face the father. And what did he expect? To be made a slave, to be punished? Probably. But what did he find instead? An embrace. He found love. He found grace. He found a restoration of his identity, the authority he thought he lost. There's a place for metanoia, repentance in our lives. When you understand it correctly, it simply means turn to face your father. I want to read one more verse because I don't have much time left. First John 
chapter 1, verse 6. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Listen, don't live in the darkness of the delusion of your own works, your own self-righteousness. Live in the light. The one who is the light of the world, live in Christ, fully trusting in Christ. The gospel gives us a new way of thinking, a new way of relating to one another, a new way of enjoying life and enjoying our relationships here on this earth where Christ is literally the bond of grace and love that holds us together. We began this study today by talking about how man turned from God at the fall. But Jesus Christ, the last Adam in another garden, turned to the Father and on behalf of you and me and all of us said, not my will, but thy will be done. In the garden, on the cross, in the grave, at the resurrection, he single-handedly reconciled us back to the Father again. And today, I invite you by faith to simply receive that grace, trust in Jesus, and repent. Trust Jesus with your whole life. Trust the direction of his voice. Trust he'll make himself known to you. Trust in him today as your Savior and your Lord. He's not the controller. He's the comforter. He's the guide. He'll be the father who never abandons his sons and daughters, the God who will never leave you or forsake you. Simply say yes to Jesus. Turn to him and you'll find grace in his eyes. Listen, I'm out of time today. If you'd like to write to us, you can do so by writing to Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Go to BillVanderbush.com, check the schedule, and you can find out all kinds of details and other resources where you can hear the gospel. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.